and welcome to our first episode of the Insult Court podcast. My name is Gray Hill and I'm the director of Insult Court. I should say, for those of you that are listening for the first time, you haven't missed any previous episodes. This is something completely new for Insult Court, but we're doing it this time with the support of CADU through their Open Doors campaign. So I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about what that is. Open Doors is a nationwide initiative, and there are sites, heritage sites across Wales, which open their doors to visitors and allow access perhaps to facilities for free uh, or to parts of buildings that may not normally be opened. Now, Insel Court is already open, I'm very happy to say, and open every day. And due to the challenges of the last 18 months, we thought we'd try something a little bit different this year. So we're producing this podcast as a bit of a proof of concept, a little bit of a pilot. So we've arranged some special guests to join us for our first episode. Vanessa Cunningham and Gaynor Howard from Insul Court's Archive Research Group. And we have a list of some of the most frequently asked questions from visitors to Insul Court. And with that, good afternoon, Vanessa and Gaynor. Good afternoon. Hello, Greg. So before we get started with the questions from visitors, I'm just going to ask you a little bit more about yourselves. Now, you're both part of the Archive Research Group, um, so you're very active currently and have been in, in recent years. But I'd like to know more about how you got involved with Insul Court in the first instance. So, Gaynor, why don't you start? How did you first get involved with Insul Court? Well, way back in, in the early 60s, my husband and I were looking for a house. And it was a time when there was a bit of a housing shortage. So there were not actually in Landaf only two houses that fitted into our budget. And because he was working for the BBC, we knew the BBC was going to move to Landaf. So we thought it might be a good idea to get a house somewhere near the place of work for all sorts of reasons. And we came to see the, this one house. The, the other house, I should explain, was one in a terrace. Nothing wrong with that at all. But we're both musicians, and consequently our neighbours would not be very happy <laughs> with uh, having the sound of music perhaps through their, their walls all the time. This was a different house, not in very good condition, but it was suitable for what we wanted. The thing was that opposite this house, there was a very high hedge in those days. And you couldn't see what was over the hedge. But nevertheless, we decided we'd have a look at the house. When we got upstairs, we suddenly saw in front of us this gorgeous garden and a really lovely old house. And we were hooked. There were heaps of people after the same house and we were lucky. That was our first meeting with the house, shall we say. But then when the children arrived and you took them for their first walks. They came into the grounds of Insel Court. Later on, they discovered the lions mm. on the South Terrace, and like all children of all of uh, that come into Insel Court, they had to have their fantasy ride on the on the lions. And then 
we moved away, but not too far away. And things were moving here. There was quite a, a history of toing and froing. And it came under some stress in Court, and we did our bit to keep the doors open and uh, got involved in that way. And then I was asked if I'd like to join the archive group and I said yes, thank you very much. If I can do something, I will. Fabulous. What about you, Vanessa? When did you first get involved? We came to live in Tlandup in 1982 and I was looking for the public library. <laughs> and public library was here in what I now know to be the drawing room. And that was my first visit to Inselcourt. They then closed the library, but I continued to be interested in the place. Mm. Um, as Gaynor spoke about the difficulties that arose later in the 80s, an action group was formed. My husband became um, a, a member of that, trying to keep the house open for the mm. public. And so since then, I've got more and more involved. And uh, then I became a, a, a one of the welcomer guides uh, who taking people around on tours of the house and so on. And then when the archive research group started, um, I chaired it. So that's ever since I've been involved in it. Fabulous. And can you tell me more about the archive research group then? So when did that start up and what's your purpose? Well, it started in 2009 when we were beginning to uh, welcome visitors to, to, to look around the house, it's the first time this has ever been done. And the guides realised that they knew an awful lot about the coal industry. They knew absolutely nothing about the people who lived in the house. And a great thing that happened at that time was that the Western Mail was put online and you could search it for particular terms. And I, I remember doing this, I put in Mrs. Insole and up came hundreds of references. And I realised that this was like a, um, a gold mine. If you wanted to know about the, their charitable activities, their social activities, um, their ad advertising for staff, mm. this was this was this was how it already started, mm. um, and so very quickly became clear that there was a lot of stuff out there that we could look at to find out about the Inso family. Well, for instance, the parish magazines that nobody had ever looked at. That was that was another little girl of mine. Uh, mm. So it was January 2010 we started. Uh, and what are we here for? We're still here to help. There were lots of lots happened since then. The Insult Trust has court trust has been set up. We are there to help the trust fulfil their objective of telling the world about this place the house, the gardens, the people who've lived and worked here, and their stories, and that's what we're still trying to do. Perfect. And perhaps a, a little later uh, we'll explain how people can now get involved with the Archive Research Group uh, if they'd like to contribute information or if they'd like to get involved with research, but we'll, we'll come on to that. The Insult Court Trust was set up 10 years ago, amazingly, but we've been operating Insult Court now for the last five years. So the trust operates the mansion and the activities within the stable yard area. We also run the fabulous Potting Shed Cafe, but the grounds are still owned and, and maintained by Cardiff Parks Department. So it's still very much a partnership with Cardiff Council, but the trust and most of the operations here are run by the charity, which is completely independent. 
So we'll go on to uh, visitor questions. And I think the first question that I get asked absolutely every day is, how did I not know this was here? That phrase that I almost wanted to get tattooed on my arm or maybe a plaque on my desk that says, I've lived in Cardiff all my life and I didn't know this was here. But at times I've sort of resented that a little like over the last five years because for all the marketing we've done and all the events and trying to spread the word, people still seem to only be finding out about us now. Um, but I've come to realise that actually people love discovering Insole Court. And if we could bottle that moment of discovery and sell it, actually we'd probably solve all our funding woes. But after they've found us and they ask how they didn't know about us, they then start asking about this amazing place and the people that built it and the people that lived here. And it's their stories that visitors seem the most fascinated with. And I think one of the first things that comes up then is how did they build it? But crucially, where did the money come from? Possibly the answer to that is that George and so who came to Cardiff at the end of the 1820s, had been left some money by his uncle and a bigger legacy from his great-uncle and came to Cardiff possibly with an eye to making his name. And he became involved in, first of all, a partnership with a man called Biddle, who was a timber, brick and coal merchant, but I gather not very much of a... A businessman and unfortunately George Insel and Biddle fell into bankruptcy which was rather disappointing for him obviously when he first was so new to Cardiff but this was a man with great determination and a great feeling of if one door closed then perhaps another one opened and he kept his eyes open his ears open as to what was going on and eventually took a lease on my small colliery up in the in the Ronda. And uh, really, that was the start of his very long association with the coal trade. But of course, as much as the money came along, the money then disappeared. Could I say there's one other source of money, which yes. I think mm. people would be interested in, because we do go on about the coal, and quite rightly so. Mm. Um, the insults, particularly George's son, James Harvey, who built this house, very shrewd in buying land, partly to raise his own social status, his gentrification project, as we call it, but also because he was able to invest in land and then in property when when Cardiff was expanding very rapidly. So he had property down in the docks, he had property in the the local suburb of Canton, and that was a big source of income, I think, yes, land yes. and coal. And very shrewdly, he leased houses on it, and of course the income from that was growing all the time. He had another um, property in uh, Lantrescent, and yet later on his son bought one in uh, another property for his own children in Somerset. He was a real entrepreneur. He could look at the future and see where things were going to produce the best results for him. So would you say that in terms of where the money went with the subsequent generations, so that if George came to Cardiff as, a, as an entrepreneur and James Harvey in Seoul, then his son grew the business substantially and, and built 
insult court or really court as it was then. But in terms of where it all went, do we start with James Harvey and the development of the house? Or is it after that that the money starts to starts to disappear? The money flows in primarily from the coal trade and the fortunes of this family and this house sort of mirror the rise and fall of the coal industry. So everybody's heard of the general strike in, in 1926. That's when, if they hadn't before, all the insoles realised it was never going to be the same again. And Alan Insole talking about how he's, he, he had never had to think about money. It was always yeah, there was always and suddenly there. it was not there. Um, so a lady who used to visit us here, who was a great niece of the last Mrs Insole, said they thought they were poor. And you must have felt poor if you suddenly didn't know where it was coming from. So the way they dealt with it was to sell things, sell large portions of land up in Vale of Morgan, sell the food farms, sell a hunting lodge, sell, sell, the, sell the, the properties roundabout. So that they continued to keep up appearances here and still have the 10 indoor servants and the 10 outdoor gardeners. Uh, I think I would have done just the same, really. Mm. Yeah. But it and, couldn't last. And I suppose that leads us on nicely to the next question, which is, why did the family leave? Was that just because the money dried up? Oh, no, I think that was uh, nothing of their uh, doing at all. In fact, um, the council were looking for land in order to, to put through an orbital rope for Cardiff. And a recent, I think I'm right in saying that a recent law had been passed that when a company wanted to take over a particular estate, that it, there was an option that not only part of the estate would be sold, but the whole of the estate could be sold by law. And it's called compulsory purchase. Yeah, well, yes, it was a compulsory purchase. Yes, 1932 uh, was the compulsory purchase order. And the orbital road was obviously the, the main reason. If they had sold only part of the estate just to let the, the road through, then there would be an enormous amount of insole land, which was the other side of the, of the road, which, as um, unfortunately, has happened in several cases uh, in, in, in the selling of land. So the mansion came as a byproduct of the purchase from Cardiff Council's perspective they Absolutely. weren't purchasing yes. the, the mansion they weren't interested in the mansion no, what they wanted was the land not at all people not always all. like to know how much they got for it because this was what, something like 56 acres of land and what you call the mansion and a beautiful garden within the the parkland it was 26 and a half thousand pounds the council paid for it wow. of which 5,000 plus was for indicated for the house. So the insoles, the few of them that were left, continued to live in the house and they had their garden. They were living on as tenants for several years, while all around them, mm. the house that Gaynor lived in and yeah. all the other, all the streets often named after insoles, were going up around. Mm. We spoke to an old lady who bought a house just over there, um, next to where Gaynor lived, and she said she could see from her house, her newly built, moved in first people to live there, she could see the maids from Insole Court up on top of the tower drying their hair. 
It must have been so strange for Mrs. Insel. Yeah. Used to look, whatever window you looked out of, you would just see your land to see houses, houses, houses going mm. very, very old. Mm. And I mean, that kind of money, What I think that's about £1.7 million in today's money, which doesn't buy you a mansion and 50-something acres. So the, the council had a bit of a steal, but... I suppose they've been paying for it ever since in some ways. Indeed, they have, Craig. <laughs> I'm sure they'd, they'd probably say that. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. They didn't want the house. They couldn't decide what to do with the house. And they were still arguing about it when, um, when war broke out and everything yeah. changed. I think what is interesting is actually that when the uh, house, the questions came up of what are we going to do with the house, there were all sorts of suggestions as to how this happened. But somehow fate intervenes and the house is saved. And uh, hard though it is to imagine it, in actual fact, World War II saved the mansion because there were services that were stationed in the middle of Cardiff, like um, the ARP, and they realised that this was very vulnerable. If Central Cardiff went, the ARP would go. Here, in a wooded, secluded area, was a house with plenty of room, and they could move the ARP in, they could move the Royal Observer Corps in, and all the Is other... Is that air raid precaution? Air raid precaution, right. that's right, Just and checking. the Royal Observer Corps. They could move them in here, and really, uh, uh, this was a place of safety. It also, uh, it was also a place that was well guarded because there were sentries at every entrance with guns. Wow. With guns, yes. <laughs> Our people don't believe that, but it's true. Yes. Both, both the lodges, yes. wow. both the entrances, I should say. I yes. think some armed guards would be quite useful for the park now. Sure, if we could well, get yes, them. indeed. <laughs> Another branch of volunteers. Oh, ah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Vigilante group. Yeah. Um, oh, I know several people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so uh, Mrs. Insull, so Jessie Insull, was quite an old lady by yeah, this point. She went off to London. She was persuaded that she, what she really wanted was a flat in London, and she took a flat in London and died there in 1938 at the age of 85. They brought her body back. She's buried in the graveyard north of Landeth Cathedral. Not a, not a grand sort of finale to the insult story no, in Cardiff. A rather sad story at the mm, end. Yeah. Uh, but the house is still here. Indeed, mm. indeed. Yes, it was absolutely vital um, hub, a part of Cardiff's defence, civil mm. defence during the war. Yes, yeah. visited uh, by the Duke of Kent, I believe, and uh, the, um, the then Minister for War and so on. Wow. Photographs of that. Well, I guess that leads on to the next question. The Insull family, so Jessie Insull, Mrs Insull moves away. Are there any Insull family members still around? Of course there are descendants, and we are in touch with some of them. In, there are some in, I think in Ireland, there are some in Australia. Um, we, we, they visited us, we visited them. But 
there's nobody called Insul. There's nobody, the name has not survived, though the genes have. Has it? Mm. Yeah, occasionally we get a phone call in the office from yeah. someone saying, hello, name my name's Mr. Insul, mm-hmm. and I'd like to know if I'm connected to yeah. Insul yeah. Court, or I think I, I think I may be connected. I don't know if they're trying to move back in or something. Well, he may be, but uh, he has to pay his own And I should say that every time we pass on that information to the archive research group, uh, who I'm afraid usually find that there's no such link. But you never know. If you go back far enough, there will be a link. Indeed. Um, So we talked a little bit about the Second World War and that era. Let's talk a little more about what happened after the family departed. So we know that they leased it back from the council for a few years, you said, and then uh, from 1939, I guess, then with the Second World War, we have the, the, the wartime administrative use. What about post-war? What happened then in the, say, 40s and onwards? Well, there was a housing shortage and uh, there was plenty of room here. And so the house was divided into flats particularly for key workers coming to Cardiff who couldn't find anywhere to live, like teachers, for example. And um, there are some rather quaint and uh, seemingly out of place reminders of this upstairs where you will find a very modern grate, or what Mm -hmm. was then a modern grate, Mm -hmm. in a room which was otherwise pure Victoriana. It just sort of pulls you up short and thinks, well, how did this happen? Part of our work has been to try and trace people who lived here and interview them, and in some cases we have managed to do that. It is really fascinating to think of all six flats plus one for the caretaker, Mm. living their lives. The children were really the beneficiaries because the gardens were most beautifully kept up, as Gaynor said, mm. um, with a dedicated parky. So you, you, your children could be just running wild. No, that's not the right term, <laughs> is it? Their children could be out of doors, safely, playing in that beautiful, beautiful uh, environment. Um, there's one lady who wrote her memoirs, didn't she? And she talks about how much they loved it here. They really loved it. Mm. And had long memories of it too. Mm. Uh, It was the sort of place which, once you had experienced it, it it remained in your mind. There was a wonderful article in the Western Mail that was cut out and was actually propped up on the mantelpiece in the then library, which uh, Vanessa mentioned earlier. Um, And it talked about Insel Court the jewel in the crown of Cardiff, and how it was hidden, it was undiscovered, and it was there for everyone to enjoy, even more so now. Mm. At the time when these flats were upstairs, downstairs was, yes, the public library, but also rooms which were used for community events. There was a Mm. very influential body called the Flandaf Citizens Association. I, I think you've heard of them. Sure. I think, Gray, you've seen some of the um, little films of the yes. um, pageants that they did on the grass outside. One, one for the Festival of Britain in 1951, one for the Queen's Coronation in 1953. You can sometimes meet old ladies who will say, oh, I danced in that. So this was the place where local people came to have their family parties, to have their wed- you know, wedding receptions. It was so important to so many people. 
it's funny how everything you're telling us just sounds like the insult court of today in a certain way. So, for yeah. example, um, we had uh, the Cardiff Outdoor Theatre Festival here just this July. Uh, that's a community theatre, that's amateur theatre with, uh, with every man, and fabulous it was. Not all that dissimilar to the pageants and I've so on. I thought of it, I thought of it when, I, when I went to yes. one of the plays. And, you know, even what you mm. described mm. then, and it now being for everyone, I mean, that, that really is what the Insulcourt Trust is, is trying to do. Exactly. So it's lovely that there are these echoes of what came before. And I don't think the, the story of Insulcourt ends in the 1930s when the family move away. It's not mothballed, it's not wrapped up in bubble wrap. Half its history, half its history. Indeed, it's Since now, so everything that you've mm. just described is mm. now repeating like, a, like an echo That's with right. the modern insult. Yes. I think that, like so many other uh, places, in, uh, other places that are in a similar situation, that people, yes, appreciate it while, while they have it. Once it's under threat, then it galvanizes the whole of the, of the community into action. And that is what has happened here. When the first uh, threats came, people were up in arms. And they realized that they must do something about it. Mm. And they went on doing it for about 30 years. Yes, they did. Yeah. They did. Yeah, I mean, I've been here for five years, which obviously is, has flown by, mm. but that really is a drop in the ocean compared to the, the length of time that the community have fought and campaigned. And, you know, and it's not just local residents. Mm -hmm. um, there were people in Cardiff Council who worked very hard to save in Court mm. as well. Um, there's a lot of people locally, not all of them, living around the corner. We had one ally we didn't know that we had. And that was Bill Nelms, who was the director of Parks and Gardens years ago. He had succeeded his father in the same job. And he realized that here was an untouched, theoretically, uh, obviously year by year it changed, but theoretically the basis of an Edwardian garden, which was so rare. And uh, he was working independently of, of the people locally to fight for this garden to be kept as a treasure. Mm. And uh, he succeeded. Yeah, he we're, succeeded. We're, we're very fortunate. We are. And I think that it's lovely hearing that actually some things haven't changed all that much, but also I, I know just how close it came to, to being lost. Yes. Um, so I hope visitors and park users and those playing on the lions today, understand just how hard people worked for it to be saved. We'll, we'll make sure that we keep reminding people of that in the Trust. Let's talk a little bit more about this this fabulous house. You mentioned that the ground floor was opened as a public library and as a community centre in the decades. And now, of course, we've had that open. Again, you look like I've missed something. Well, not only when the library was open, but it was a time when people were coming back from the war, looking for jobs, coming to Cardiff. 
They were going into colleges. Now, for example, the Reardon Smith Nautical College had its home in Fairwater. The number of people who were applying there and wanted to be a part of that was greater than the number of rooms that they had available. And so they used to hire rooms out from here. And uh, people from the College of Technology, as Mm. it was then, did exactly the same thing. Mm. And so we had students here as well. And of course, because they were in uh, an academic situation, those rooms were barred to everybody else. And you could look through the window and see various people working hard inside, but you couldn't get into the house and uh, wander around. In fact, my daughter always says that she used to go into the library as a small child and uh, get out her books, whatever they were. And uh, she used to long to go upstairs. But there was a barrier, and they couldn't. we couldn't go anywhere. It was just the hallway and the library for us, for the students, it was the downstairs room, and that was it. And of course, we opened the first floor to the public in 2018, with yes. the opening of our, our exhibition, This House is a Stage, which mm-hmm. I'll say a little more on at the end. I believe that was the first time that the first floor was open to the public, other than for tours? Very occasional tours, okay. very, very special. But the tours. rooms upstairs which were apartments, right? So those were flats, still, or flats. For 40 years, really. And then as we go further into the house, up in the second floor, we have the servants' quarters, or the former servants' quarters. But those are unfortunately still in a, a little bit of a sorry state. Do you know if they were used for anything between the insoles and servants' use of them to the semi-derelict spaces they are yeah, today. Yeah, all flats, all flats. Gosh. Uh, less and less lettable. Um, yeah, they're quite dark in the mm. very in the, in the the ceiling, essentially, in the roof, sorry, of the, of the mansion. They're not lovely spaces. I mean, they've got some nice views of the park, for sure. Beautiful. But you can yes. see why they were the servants' quarters and, mm. and not used mm. by the family. And very little facility for warming. The poor maids that were up there, you know. Tiny little things. Yes, yes. Then they have to struggle up with the coal, of course. Yes, Mm. that's right. Gosh, yes, because there wouldn't have been a lift like there is today. And in actual fact, uh, one of the big questions that we have asked amongst ourselves is how did the servants get up from their kitchens and their their, uh, places where they were without coming into the main house? And of course, when a house changes, as this one has, some of the answers to that go with it. One of our members thinks that they can reconstruct the way that it went up, and I've no reason to disbelieve that. But uh, this is always a problem with a house that lives a long time and goes through various changes, Mm. that you're not always going to be able to answer every question. You know, you've mentioned certain certain things that clearly you, you love very very dearly about in Court already, um, the gardens, the trees, the lions. Are there any other particular features or elements that you, you hold especially dear? Maybe it's the stone animals that appear in the park. In 1872, James Harvey Insull was granted arms, uh, a crest, which included a griffin. It was quite a beautiful crest because it was Asia and gold. 
and it's that lovely bright blue, not a dark blue background. And the animals appear in funny places. If you come up the South Drive, just where it joins the courtyard, there is a plinth on which sits a griffin with a coat of arms in front of him. Now, apparently a griffin is supposed to represent power and is also a guardian. I think James Harvey Enso quite liked the idea of having his house as a seat of power and also something that was well guarded by all the land around him. Mm. So that uh, you had to have pretty good amount of courage to walk all the way down from Fairwater Road to the front door or all the way up from what was then Vaughan Avenue, either driveway, the north or the south, to arrive at the front door for whatever. Of course, mm. there were some children who did this after Christmas each year, uh, which was a tradition of bringing oranges. Kellenig, uh, is it called? Yes, yes, mm. I think so. And they had, um, they expected, of course, some donation for their trouble, which they no doubt got. Because when one talks about so much wealth of the insoles, people don't talk about their generosity. And their generosity was pretty fantastic. I run the timeline for the, the archive group, and scarcely a month goes past without a donation of some sort or other. It could be 10 shillings, it could be a pound. In those days, a pound bought a great deal more than it does at the present moment. And there were some very substantial donations from uh, James Harvey and so. For example, he offered a thousand pounds towards the infirmary in Cardiff, but he tied it up so wonderfully. He said, I will give a thousand pounds if five other donors will give the same amount. Now, that was a real Mm. challenge to a whole lot of very wealthy people who lived around Cardiff. Do you think that the motivation for that was entirely philanthropic? (laughs) Good question. I appreciate we can't know for sure, but given the status consideration, which was so much of of the agenda, I suppose. There are so many things mm. that... But nonetheless, they, they, did, they did a lot of... Yes, they did yes, some good. It yes. actually happened that we had... The, there was an insole ward at the, at the infirmary shortly after. Right. Yeah. Because, of course, James Harvey insole, um, not to go too far down a tangent, but that James Harvey insole had the legacy of the Cummer disaster hanging over him. The house being built in 1856, <laughs> the same <laughs> year as the Cummer colliery disaster at their, their mining cover in the Rhonda Valleys. Again, you look at the timeline and it's easy to make assumptions. I wonder if the philanthropic giving was in any way motivated by a desire to do good. Who knows? I mean, what we do have is some wonderful correspondence, though, don't we, from James Harvey to his, uh, to his granddaughter. We have a, oh, yes. A, yes. A, a letter that he illustrated beautifully to, to his granddaughter it's very hard to, to know them, but uh, what we are left with now are these little snapshots, like the griffins, like the lions. You mentioned the griffin guarding the driveway, yes. but of course what visitors might not realise is that there were two more 
at the base of the steps. So where the lions yes. are, you, just, their feet, can't you can just make out the stubs of their feet. Mm-hmm. Yes. Compared to the lions, they might not have weathered the, the children playing on them for generations quite as well. Maybe. Do we know when those were lost? I don't, I don't know. Don't know. Don't the know. wartime pictures, they're all sitting on the steps, but they don't go down that far. Right. No. Mm-hmm. So we've got the lions, we've got the griffins. And then we've got the gargoyles, and the, there's the toad, and there's all sorts of animals on the mansion themselves still. Yes, there are, there are, um, there are two bench seats in the southeast garden, the lower southeast garden, where um, the uprights for the benches, the stone benches, have got griffins carved into them. There's one wonderful uh, set of, of animals these were carved by William Willingdale Taylor, who worked for Clarks, which was the local stonemason, and whose activities here were numerous because I think they were the go-to people that the insoles uh, uh, called upon whenever they wanted some alterations done. But around what we call now the, the Swiss wing, there is a recess, a narrow recess, all the way round the end of the Swiss ring, wing. And these little animals are scampering yes. along this re- recess. It's surprising that they exude so much energy because really the, the worst of the weather on the, on the west side and the, the stone has weathered mm-hmm. quite badly. Not always is this the case because between the bay windows in the front, on the uh, between the upper and lower floors, there are some plaques with animals on them. Those haven't weathered so badly. Come across these surprisingly in in various places. Even in the house, there is one shield with a griffin on it, which somebody with in a burst of enthusiasm has unfortunately painted red. Mm. Which is not the uh, family. Not club. us, I should say. No, just not, in case. not you. No, not way, way long ago. And um, we've got um, animals in carved in wood mm. in what is now called the reading room. What about you, Vanessa? Is there any particular feature or design element or something like that that you keep coming back to as something you especially love about this place? Not especially love, but I think from the point of view of design, it is what has survived of the neo-Gothic embellishments that were done in the 1870s that probably give the house its quality. If, if you only had, could only show them two rooms, you would show them what, what we now are learning to call the reading room. Sure. But to us, it will always be the smoking room or yeah. the old dining room. Um, and then upstairs, the library. These rooms are amazingly unchanged from when James Harvey spent all that money on them. Um, only the fireplace has changed, I think, in the downstairs room, the reading room. And that has a most remarkable freeze, which people who've been to Cardiff Castle come in and say, oh, because they, they recognise it. There's something very, very similar down at the castle. But um, I could talk forever about this. We've got a little booklet written by Matthew Williams, who was the uh, curator of, of, of Cardiff Castle, who did a, a deep study on the design here. And... Um, it is really quite remarkable that that has survived. And the council has really paid good money to get it, keep it up and make it beautiful. And visitors love it. 
And then upstairs, which not everybody gets to see, is what was James Harvey's library. And yes, we do know it was a library because there are all sorts of um, mottos up on the ceiling, some in Latin, mm -hmm. but the ones I can read say things like the path to wisdom leads through books or the the wealth of the mind is the only true mind which is yeah. a marvelous thing to say to somebody who's making all this money by <laughs> grinding the, the colliers uh, what i love about those inscriptions too mm, or those statements yeah. on the ceiling um is you've got those very poetic quite beautiful statements mm. on on one half of the ceiling and on the other side uh, it says uh, wisdom adorns riches and it shadows poverty. Oh, well done. Then just next to it, you've got the J-H-I. You've got the initials. It's his ceiling. Of course it is. And mm. just as we were discussing earlier with the, the philanthropy and so on, I think one thing we can say about James Harvey Insole is that he was a complex character. And it's interesting looking at it from a 21st century perspective. Exactly. And the, exactly. the nuances mm. of mm, exactly. good and bad mm. and, and and our perception of that. But that uh, room has amazingly survived. When mm. you th we were talking about the flats, that was somebody's sitting room. In the with a vaulted wall. ceiling. Yeah, which is fantastic. <laughs> they call it the chapel room and you can see why. Yeah, well, lovely. we filled it with pews uh, and have weddings uh, in there now. alabaster arches around the window. The, have you ever looked at the door, the back of the of door, course. the painting on the back of the door, that little ivory door handle? Families with small children lived in that, and yeah. that was their sitting room. I think it's a miracle that it's there. Yeah. I will move on to our next question, as it's quite um, quite appropriate. We have survived. Insole Court has survived, certainly against these odds. And you mentioned Matthew Williams. Mm. earlier who wrote the uh, History of Insole Court booklet that we, we have for sale in the Mansion Bookshop if anyone's interested. I should say there is another booklet for sale there written by the two of you about the servants of Insole Court which is available so thank you for the plug. Come on down but uh, Matthew Williams has another book, uh, a full book that uh, we've recently started selling that he published last year uh, called The Lost Houses of Cardiff because as remarkable as Insole Court is and as remarkable as Insole Court's survival is, there were a great many lost, very similar, mm -hmm. uh, very stri similarly striking houses that were lost. So how is it, why is it, that Insole Court has survived? I think community involvement. A community that would not let this place die. 30 years is a long, long time to, to keep on keeping on as they have. Um, and there is another reason, isn't there? There's a public park. Yes. <laughs> yes, but I, I think, well, going back to what I said earlier, about somehow fate intervenes uh, to make sure, simply by the way things were at the time, the house has survived because it can fulfil a need. It can fulfil a need for housing, for recreation, particularly over this last month, uh, these last months when we've been mm. so locked down, people have come to the grounds, even one has to say, the state of the lawns can tell that people have been here. Uh, 
in greater numbers probably than for many, many years, because uh, although the lawns are now recovering their, to their former glory and, and the, the flower beds and so on, it has been remarkable how many people go to, uh, particularly from the local community, but now from a wider community. They've got open air, they've got something wonderful to look at, and it gives calmness. It's got a cafe, let's give it the cafe it a plug. It's got something for everybody. Couldn't have said it better myself. We should mention that in terms of the community support and mm. the last 30 years that you know that still continues today in the dozens and dozens of volunteers that we have uh, helping to not only run in Solcourt um, from our trustees of course who are all volunteers but also uh, those who work in the gift shop those who show people around on tours the archive research group who we've mentioned who of course are volunteers we have volunteers who help out just at weddings and, and similar events uh, I believe we have over a hundred and given that we opened five years ago with just three members of staff but required dozens of volunteers from the get-go it just goes to show how much of a combined effort this is running in support and now we have volunteer gardeners of course as well how can I forget the gardeners uh, even our second-hand bookshop is run by volunteers are uh, the the hundreds the thousands of hours worth of time that people invest into this I think it it illustrates, Gaynor, what you were saying about the good that comes from Insul Court. Yes. The good that comes from the place, but the good that comes from the classes and activities, secondhand books, giving people a reason to come during COVID, during lockdown, when the shops were closed and so mm. on. It illustrates just how necessary this is when you look at how enthusiastic people are about giving their time to deliver it and ensure that it remains for future generations. Should we say something too about the Heritage Lottery Fund? I certainly will. I'm I, I always, uh, always happy to talk about how this happened. So I mentioned that the Trust was formed 10 years ago and Insole Court was a community asset transfer, the largest, I believe, in Wales to date. And... That couldn't have happened without the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the National Lottery Community Fund. We also received significant support from CADU and, of course, it's a partnership with Cardiff Council. There are other grants and trusts who've supported us throughout the COVID crisis. Uh, and I think it's worth me just saying a real thank you to, to them and to members of the community who've not just given their time through volunteering and so on, but uh, have helped us financially too. Because even when we opened in Court, it cost about a thousand pounds a day to run this place. It now costs more than that. So we wouldn't be able to keep this place going and keep it safe had it not been from the support of our major funders and to the community. So a very big thank you from me on behalf of the Insult Court Trust for that. It's lovely watching. I have 
So I've just got a couple more questions. We had one submitted online that was quite a specialist question that I'm hoping that you can help with. They said, I guess when the house was first built that no municipal utility supplies existed. For instance, like many grand homes, did they install their own electric generator and lighting? Did the original house have its own water well and earth closet? Is that something that you know about? I don't know about earth closets, but they certainly were wells. Um, the gas was first laid on in the early 1870s. There's a wonderful photograph of the beautiful um, staircase in the main hall, which of course is still there, alabaster, marble, very grand, but at the bottom of the staircase is a gasolier in the shape of, you guessed it, a, a griffin, um, <laughs> which has disappeared. Now, your daughter says she remembers seeing it when she came to change her library book as a little girl, so it, that means it must have been here through the war, which I find very hard to believe. No, it must have been taken off before the war because they yes. stored all the, bit, the, the bits under the staircase, yes. didn't they? And of course, there were so many people in and out. I mean, yeah. uh, there is uh, there are some uh, wonderful pieces of graffiti, actually, mm. on the uh, fireplace in the hallway of Churchill and Uncle Sam and so on. There are so many reminders of so many different things that have happened in the house during the years that it has been built, little things that immediately take your mind back to the different times. Mm. Oh, and the electricity, yes, it, it was installed in 1890, I think. Wow. Uh, so I mean, yes, they would have their own, their own room, generator room, yes, definitely. And the water was always a problem, but we think that's one of the reasons that the shape of the tower was changed in 1907. Uh, so that big water tanks could be installed up there, which are s still there, aren't they? Well, There's space, I think, where the tanks were, yeah. but I had heard that there were there were tanks mm. once in there. I've heard mention of it in the past related to the, the Second World War usage, but it sounds like they, they were installed much earlier. Oh yes, definitely, because there are lovely bathrooms. A lot happened to the house in the Edwardian period, and it was made half as big again with a great big new east wing. And certainly part of that project was bathrooms, lovely bathrooms. Yeah, I can tell you though, from a 21st century perspective, it's not the most energy efficient house. And when the gas mm. and the electricity was put in, I don't think they were thinking much about efficiency in the environment. Uh, our gas bill suggests that they definitely weren't. Absolutely. Also, central heating was put in in 1907, just for the ground floor. Right. There are some fabulous radiators yes. in the ground I floor. Do we know, know how whether they're are? original or whether they are imitations of the original, but there would have been radiators there from, from that period. Yes. Amazing. Mm. Uh, well, hopefully that, that satisfied that curiosity. But, but I, we have nerds on our group who could help him in great detail should he want it. Well, <laughs> what a great excuse then to talk once more about the Archive Research Group. So if people would like to get um, involved, if they would like to help research or if they have a particular passion for local history, how do they get involved? We have a form that they can fill up. It's simple as that. Because quite honestly, if we've had a group going for 11 years, it is now, it's very difficult if somebody comes in completely new and, oh, tell us everything. You know, you can't. Mm. Because we've forgotten, we know a lot and we've forgotten most of it. So 
it's what they can bring to us. We've just recently got a new member who was already a volunteer here who's got a passion for the gardens and she is going to be our garden guru. Uh, lots of people are interested in the gardens but she's going to pull it all together in a way that we can tell it to visitors. So then our job was to get to her all the stuff about the gardens that have been collected over the years, um, which we're trying to do. It, hap it happens mm -hmm. that way. As uh, volunteers on the archive group, we all have, or rather I should say perhaps, our own particular interests emerge. Mm -hmm. We have people who are interested in stonework, we have people who are interested in all sorts of facets of, of uh, living in, in so court. While we're all aiming to know more, it eventually comes out that people have special interests and these result in research papers that we write and one thing and another. And, uh, I think where we are lacking now we're an elderly group, obviously. Um, it's the archive side, where it links into modern ways of working with the computer, with the online... Neither Gaynor and I will switch that computer on, because we're afraid of it. Uh, and we're the only two people who are around at the moment, for various reasons. The people in our group who are more okay with that sort of thing, for health reasons and other reasons, cannot be involved at the moment. So there's, there is a hiatus. If we had somebody who came today and said, um, I'm, um, I'm just retiring as an archivist and um, I'd love to help you, we would just lock them in this room and never let them out because there's so much to be done. Well, let's hope that they're listening. Oh, please listen. So, please come and help us. So it's good to know that there's a form so that mm. for people to feel like when they, when they visit in person, mm. if anyone, not just those who are especially digitally savvy mm. uh, if they'd like to get involved uh, they can email archive at insolcourt.org yes, so please, please mm. get in touch mm. if you have some time or some expertise that you'd be willing to share with the archive researchers it sounds like they'd really appreciate it well thank you so much for your time and for your insight today i very much enjoyed listening to some of these stories you start by fa admiring a bit of architecture and then you look a bit closer and see something else and then you hear about the family and that is exactly what is so interesting because people who casually come in and have got a particular interest that perhaps has lain dormant for many years and they suddenly see something it happened the other day. I saw a man pointing out to his wife something high up in the roof from the garden. And I said to him, are you interested in the building? Oh, yes, he said, I love old buildings. So I said, there's plenty to look at here. Mm. And it certainly fulfills needs. People who are looking to expand their knowledge on various things. In Silcourt can answer lots of questions. So if you're listening to this and you've maybe never even heard of Insult Court or maybe you used to come through the grounds and wonder what was in that strange old house then it sounds like we're formally inviting you to come and discover it for yourself. I genuinely feel like there's something here for everyone and we're open every day um, so the mansion now has reopened and is here from 10 till 4 most days. Uh, we occasionally close it for filming, uh, popular TV and film location, 
uh, which all helps the charity. But we also are a licensed wedding venue. Um, so uh, maybe check on our website or give us a call uh, first to make sure that the house is open on the day that you're visiting. Uh, but most of the time we're open from 10 till 4. We have a lovely cafe that serves homemade cakes. We've got the grounds which are free, the car park is free. Um, the first floor exhibition that I mentioned earlier is fabulous. It's called This House is a Stage and it's just £5 for adults, £2.50 for under 16s, although I should say that it's not intended for young children. That takes about 35 minutes and it's a wonderful, dramatic audio telling of the insoles and, and how they built the house and, and their story. But there is an awful lot to just to see and discover here, not to mention the daily classes and activities and events, uh, which you can learn more of by looking online at our website, www.insolcourt.org. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, at Insolcourt, or just by searching Insolcourt on Google. And I should say as well that as part of the Open Doors programme, we are one of many heritage sites that are opening their doors or producing content like this. So if you'd like to find more activities in your area, wonderful places to visit like Insol Court or just more content online, you can find more on CADU's website, which is CADU, C-A-D-W dot gov dot Wales. So thank you again to Vanessa and Gaynor for being part of this pilot podcast. I hope this has been as fascinating to you listening as it has for us in the room discussing it, but we'd really welcome your feedback. So if you'd like to hear more about a particular topic uh, or a particular aspect of Insel Court's history, do get in touch with us through our website, uh, through our social media, or by emailing inquiry at insolcourt.org. I should say as well that uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Grey Hill. Well, thank you again, Vanessa Gaynor. We hope to have another episode out to you in the near future. Thank you for asking us.